I think it's probably obvious to everyone that human beings are a divisive sort of creature. That's part of us. Business partners, just look out in the world. Business partners are always suing each other. Families fight over inheritances. A death doesn't go by when that, that isn't, that doesn't just come in somewhere. Maybe not a fight, but considerations of how things will be shared out. Departments in schools and colleges, they are notoriously prone to infighting. Wherever people gather, there's fighting. Approximately half of marriages end in divorce. So wherever people are thrown together in regular association, there are divisions. It's part of us. Isn't it interesting that we expect the church to be different? We know this about human beings. This is human behavior. And yet, we expect the church to be different. It's also interesting to me that um, people who contribute to conflict all over their lives, people who are prone to conflict, uh, are oddly self-righteous when shaking their heads at conflict in the church. Can you believe those Christians? And it's usually Christians that are, are saying this about other Christians in the church. People who can't maintain a single healthy relationship will pontificate about how the church ought to be. Am I wrong? This does happen. And I hear it wondering, what do, what, so what do we do with your type in the church? The fact, well, I mean, we have to be honest, the fact is, uh, we were all Dead in our sins and trespasses. We're a bunch of formerly dead people. Dead in sin. We're all recovering. Every single one of us is recovering from addiction to self-love and the pursuit of our own interest. Every one of us. That's part of our story. So we have deep brain patterns well-worn bodily responses to all sorts of self-interest. And now, now we're alive, our souls are alive, because God has given us His Spirit, but we're thrown together at all sorts of, all sorts of points in our recovery. All sorts of points in our journey with God and transformation with God. I mean, across this room, we're all over the map. But we're all in recovery. So we're going to have conflict. This should not surprise us at all. We are going to have conflict. We're going to send each other into reactionary self-protection. Like all the time we're doing it. You do this to me all the time. And I do this to you. I'll probably say something today that's going to send you swirling. Oh, that guy. We're going to disagree about what's right to do in all sorts of circumstances. So what do we do when this happens? This is normal there. We, we expect it to be different here. 
So what do we do? Well, if we follow cultural teaching, the messages that we get out there, we leave. When we get uncomfortable, we leave. We just narrow the circle, eliminate contact with people who make us uncomfortable. We go to another church who will agree with us on that particular point of discomfort that brought about the conflict. There will be other ones there. Or some, another route is to claim the church is hypocritical, we're going to leave it all together, and then proudly rest in our own hypocrisy. A hypocritical church. When division happens among church leaders, one of them will often go start a new church. Because they were right, after all. Uh, you probably know the shocking example of that large church in Seattle. You know that one. Um, somehow, pastors that act more like Caesar than Jesus Christ are encouraged to do it again. Just keep that going. But that's just following cult cultural teaching. That's, just that's the norm. Find your tribe. Find who thinks just like you. And it's all going to go well. Just find your tribe. Well, but we know it's not supposed to be like that. We know that. I can say this with full confidence here. As I'm describing this, you're, you're thinking, yeah, it shouldn't be like that. We would not get upset with Christians that act like everyone else if we didn't know that God leads us in a different way. If we didn't know, it should be different somehow. So, as with anything else, though, we're not just going to stumble on God's way. We will not stumble into living rightly. We have to look and listen to his word by the help of the Holy Spirit. We, that is how we can see the different way. So as we've been seeing, 2 Corinthians is about this. So if you have the Bible, please open to 2 Corinthians. This was a letter given to the church to help us with how to live together as God's people. These realities we've been observing, they've always been with us. And God in his kindness wants to show us how to work through those, wants to show us how to live differently. The church in Corinth, it had been struggling through a season of division. Pretty brand new church. Didn't take it but a couple years to where these, these issues were surging. And so with the help of their father in the faith, Paul, they have recognized, they've, come, they've realized how this happened, how they, they got here. Now, when I'm saying the church in Corinth, I'm going to give a little background if you haven't been here, so it will help understand the context here. When I say the church in Corinth, and we see 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, what we're talking about is a collection of multiple small churches in a city of about 100,000 people. Small churches meeting in wealthy households. Small churches that exist through the generosity of patrons, those wealthy householders. Each one has its patron, and each one had a person called an overseer. The Greek word is episkopos. We get bishop from it. If you don't like that, we just say overseer. Each one had an overseer. 
The overseer organized the gatherings, organized the worship, and maybe principally saw to the distribution of food. Central to the life of the early church was the distribution of food from the wealthy patrons to the, the, large, the majority who were hungry. So these small churches that together comprised the church of Corinth, they had exhibited different spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians shows you all about that. They had different spiritual gifts and based on different relationships that they had with Paul and then a later visitor, Apollos, and a later visitor, Peter, they had different primary connections. They also had different temperaments. Each of those gatherings had a different temperament. Is it really analogous to, if we look across Nampa, many churches here, there are different temperaments to them. We emphasize different things. Same faith, some different emphases. So they were vulnerable to false teaching because there was a competitiveness that had developed between them. They were vulnerable. Some false teachers had come and had, had made a big impact on them. It, it seemed to be a return to a, a return to the law. There were Jewish false teachers that sort of followed Paul wherever he had gone and tried to undo the work of the gospel. And these teachers had had a big impact on a few of those men overseeing those small churches. And there was division over doctrine. Paul was based at Ephesus to, across the Aegean Sea. Paul had heard about the disruptions, heard about the competition, heard about the conflict, got in a boat and came over to try to settle things out to uh, exercise his apostolic authority to set things in order. And it was, as chapter 2, verse 1 indicates, a painful visit. That's how he characterizes this. One of those overseers of those household churches, swayed by the false teachers, did something publicly embarrassing. We don't know what it was because Paul doesn't bring it up with specificity. He'd done something that publicly embarrassed and was intentionally trying to shame the apostle. He may, uh, this is my favorite interpretation, he may have refused to let Paul in his house to preside over the gathering to teach. It may be also that maybe he allowed Paul in, but he gave he gave the presidency, the presiding, to one of the false teachers. With the apostle sitting there, he gave preference to a false teacher. It may have been that. There may have been a, a gathering of the leaders and a public fight about the doctrine. We, we don't know exactly, but whatever it was, this leader had enough local sway over the other leaders that others followed him in the rejection of Paul, and so he left. We should think for just a second about what he could have done. This is the Apostle Paul, in whom the power of the Holy Spirit poured. Healing happened when, in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit was so active in Paul that people would take handkerchiefs, touch Paul's body, and go, and, and people were healed by that. This is Paul who, uh, when he pronounced a curse on someone, they went blind, another false teacher. 
Paul could have exercised this kind of authority there in Corinth. He could have rallied those who were loyal to him and said, Look, all right, um, you come away from them, we're going to set up a competition. If that's how you want to roll, we'll do it. Okay, throw down. Let's have a public debate in which Paul was very skilled. Could have done that. But as we saw last week, instead of engaging competition and conflict, he followed the spirit of God. And he acted by the grace of God. He didn't try to defend himself in those circumstances. He withdrew. He left. And then in quiet and peace, he wrote them a very clear, very plain call to return to the gospel, the gospel they had received from his mouth, the gospel that had set them free from bondage to sin. It was very clear. Return to the gospel or you're lost. That much we know about it. It's a lost letter, so we don't know all the details of it. But it was a clear call to, return, to repent and return to the gospel. We know, verse 4, chapter 2, that this call to repentance was made out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So when Paul wrote it, he was gushing. He was pouring out um, passionately. Not to manipulate them, because he, he's clear. I don't, ha- I don't want anything to do with manipulation. I don't want anything to do with um, trying to pull rank. But to let them know the abundant love that I have for you. That's what was driving, motivating this call. I have this abundant love for you. We get a sense that there was a, a reminder both of the gospel that they had received and the giver. He's saying, re- remember. Remember what we experienced. That letter took them back to their salvation. It took them back. It it sounds like the call of the Lord Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 2 when he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. There's a similar call to remember your first love. Jesus says to them, they've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. And it's like this that that Paul's reminding Corinth. Remember what you were saved from. Do you ever do that exercise? It's a good one. Think back. Think back to the confusion you felt when you were awakened by the love of God for you. Think back to those that casting about. Think back about the, on those, the habits that you had that kept you ensnared. Things you were delivered from. Ways of relating to people. Can you remember that? Ways you sought to control your life and to control people around you, to try to get results. And Paul's saying, remember that. Remember also the suffering we suffered together when he was with them. And they suffered. There was a mob of Jews that came and they, uh, they brought some of the leaders of the church in front of the proconsul Gallio and they were beating Sosthenes who had been a former leader of the synagogue and was now one of those overseers. Remember that? Remember the beatings you endured? All of this. You were willing to lose anything for the sake of Christ. You were ready to, to, 
Lose your very life for the sake of Christ. And you would have given anything for me, your brother. That gospel changed your life. That was the gospel that we shared. That's what he was pouring out in that letter. In in this section of chapter 2, now we're we're up to speed here in chapter 2, we get some indication of what had followed when they received that letter. They had repented. It, It really is amazing when anyone repents. When you get a whole church repenting, incredible. They were refreshed in mind. They did, in fact, remember the gospel. It It's possible that many of them, many of those leaders, had been uncomfortable with the false teachers. It's possible that um, most most of them wanted to resist the new teaching, but they were following this cultural norm of hospitality that when someone's speaking, you you don't confront them. They didn't want to speak out. And then when this vocal, there's that vocal overseer who'd been really swayed, that person may have had quite a bit of charismatic authority in the group, meaning um, just was winsome. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to confront him. It's, it's better to just get along. This will sort itself out. The false teachers will leave. And then maybe we can get back to normal. So they compromised. And that had carried them to a bad place. Getting that letter it was like it woke them up. Look where we are. Look at, look at where we've come. Paul's tearful letter, it had clarified things. He had helped them see how they'd fallen under the sway of Satan's teaching. Well, however they did it, uh, they, whether they gathered, got together in a meeting, somehow they realized we've got we've to change this. And they had disciplined this vocal leader. They'd, may, it, maybe they removed his authority. Maybe they had told the rest of the church, don't go to that gathering because he's not teaching the gospel. They may have cut off fellowship uh, amongst the leaders with him. But whatever it was, Paul refers to it as this punishment by the majority. You see that phrase, this punishment by the majority. This can, uh, we're Americans, obviously, when we think majority, we're, we, we picture us. Like, we're, we're thinking about all the people. But this is an ancient church. And so, punishment by the majority means the other overseers, the leaders. Um, the congregation is not in a position to, to punish. So, these aren't, it's not a bunch of middle class Americans expecting that they all have equal say in the decision. Um, The majority are the leaders who have stopped recognizing this one as a legitimate pastor. And they have told people, avoid him until he repents. That's called church discipline. That makes people really uncomfortable when we start talking about church discipline. Um, And so for your sake... Um, I know that some of you have wounds in this area. That's what it is, but I'm going to use a different term. Um, What church discipline is about, I'm going to go there. It's about maintaining integrity. The heart of it is 
Maintaining integrity as a Christian group. How do we maintain integrity as a Christian group? When a false teaching comes in, we've lost our integrity. As long as we allow a false teacher to teach, we do not have integrity as the people of God. So in order to return to that integrity, we have to discipline, we have to exclude the false teacher. And then integrity is restored. So in this passage that we're looking at, it's a precious passage. We see a few keys for how a church can work according to God's grace, by God's grace, to maintain integrity as a Christian people. How do we do it? Here it is. First, the effort to maintain integrity cannot be done or motivated by power and self-interest. As soon as that's done, we've already lost. Integrity's gone. That's not how Jesus works. So motivating by power and self-interest has to be put aside. It must come from self-forgetfulness and love of the church on the part of leaders. Self-forgetfulness and love of the church. We, this is what we saw last week when we looked at Paul's actions. Paul comes at this situation not at all worried about how these people think about him. He's not worried about his position his role as an apostle is not under threat here. He is an apostle. But he's worried for their salvation. Not motivated by power, motivated by concern for their salvation. So he was willing to leave. He was willing to carry the shame of this public embarrassment. Just carry it. Let it. Let those upstarts have the last say. There may have been mocking words that just sort of hung in the air as Paul walks out. Oh, look at him. Look at him go. He's so lame. He's literally. Look at him. That's the, he can't even speak straight because he's been beaten so many times. Look how lame that guy is. He let it hang there. But he left because look at the last verse in chapter 1. We do not lord it over your faith. We do not beat you with our apostolic authority. We exercise it. We don't do it as lords, as, as dominus there. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm by faith. The only way you're going to stand firm is by your own faith, not by an apostle beating you into submission. So, when he wrote the call to repent, verse 3 in chapter 2, when he wrote it, I felt sure of all of you. That we would share joy. I, I know you. I know your faith. I felt sure of you. So he is not interested in being proven right. He's interested in them returning to faith. Genuine, legitimate faith. So, first, maintaining integrity cannot be done when it's motivated by power and self-interest. It must be done by love for the integrity of the church, love for the church. Second, maintaining church integrity mustn't be aimed at punishment, but at restoration. The goal, it cannot be vindictive. The goal is that we would be all one, to, that we would be together. So when the leaders realized that they had 
left the gospel of Jesus. We're seeing this. They were mad. <laughs> That's kind of understandable. They realized, look what we've done. They were mad. Um, even if it's just because they had been intimidated into silence. They were mad at the one who had opened the door to it. That guy, he's the one that gave the, these false teachers welcome. And he's so, his personality is so big. We didn't even feel like we could resist him. Man, we're so mad at you. They were ashamed of themselves. Rightly. And they wanted to get things back right. But at this point, Paul's warning them. Paul warns them that the king, the king of this people, is the Lord of grace. As God has forgiven them, they have to forgive. Verse 6, that overseer's desire to repent should be met with grace. Paul says, verse 6, you should turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. If he's in danger of despair and excessive sorrow, that's indicating this is legitimate repentance. He's not just playing at repentance. And so this was the goal of Paul's action all along. Verse 9, he says, This is why I wrote that I might test or prove or ascertain and know whether you are obedient in everything. Now, what this means is he wants to see if returning to true integrity is what they really want. It is, what, is it what you really want is to return fully? And in order to show, show a true, heartfelt love for the gospel, return to the gospel, he had required they do something really uncomfortable. Remove the authority of this guy. If you really want integrity, that's the action you have to take. That's the natural consequence. True repentance always includes a change of action. Let that one sink in. True repentance always includes a change of action. True repentance will always cost. And in this case, gospel integrity costs social connection. It is very obvious that that overseer had a lot of something. It may have been charismatic authority. It may have been money. He had a lot of influence. It was costly to the others to break association with him. But they wanted it. They wanted integrity. So Paul says, in the same way that you did that, in the same way that you repented and you were restored, Paul's now saying, do the same for this offending brother. They were restored by repentance. Now they're to restore him as he's repenting by forgiving and comforting him. So church integrity isn't aimed at getting back at the opponent. That's the message we get out there. Get your own back. Be vindicated. It's aimed at restoring fellowship. But fellowship on the real ground of obedience to Jesus. Not on the basis of just getting along. 
on the real ground of obedience to Jesus. Because if we all return to seeking and submitting to Jesus, then we're going to have integrity as a people. If we all return to seeking and submitting to Jesus, we will have integrity as his people. And this filters out, filters down and out. Verse 10, Paul can say, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Let's let the forgiveness just run. Anything I've forgiven has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So it's because of our common ground in the Lord Jesus Christ, we share forgiveness and we scatter it all around. Finally, maintaining church integrity is not about achieving harmonious social relationships. It's ultimately about spiritual realities. It's ultimately about the reality of being the people of God. We can think about what we're doing here today as a, a social phenomenon. That's what sociologists do. Um, that's how academics study church life. It's a social phenomenon. We can think about it like that. If that's all we do, we should shut the doors on this place. This is, there's a spiritual reality here. That's, what's a, that's what we're about. The troubles that God's people face, the conflicts that affect church bodies, always involve the schemes and designs of Satan. The enemy of God hates God's people. The enemy of old hates God's people. And because he cannot have us under his rule, we've been taken out from under his rule, he can't have us, he wants to harm us. And he wants to undermine our testimony, undermine our witness to the love of God. He wants us to be a scandal. And we so often are. That's a delight to him. Now make no mistake, he uses our old addictions to self-love. He did not give us those addictions to self-love. That's us. He uses them, though. He uses our slavery to the flesh, our addiction to the flesh. He's an old serpent. He's been around from the beginning. The demons, they're fallen angels. They've been around since the beginning. They know what humans are like. They know <laughs> the powers of darkness they are opportunistic in the extreme. There's nothing so attractive to evil as hearing some particular notes, self-interest, wounded pride, self-promotion, and contempt. When we start acting out of wounded pride, it's like a song to the enemy saying, come. Come, it's a field day for you. Those are sweet sounds to Satan because it's his song. It's the one he sang first. We caught the notes of it. But we are only vulnerable to the designs of evil as long as we cooperate with them. He does not have authority over us. It requires our cooperation. If this church is going to be suffer from division, it requires our cooperation. Satan will not 
do it to us, we will join him. Instead, Paul's instructing, what we see here in the Corinthians, if we take up the gospel and the mind of Christ, evil flees. We can see in these scriptures, the key attitude for combating the divisiveness of evil is forgiveness. That's the situ- they're, they're in a situation of divisiveness. The note Paul continues to strike is forgiveness. Forgiveness. When you adopt, when you exercise the forgiveness given you and you share it out, evil flees. Verses 10 to 11. Paul ties the return to a song of forgiveness to the thwarting of Satan's designs. How do you thwart his designs? You forgive. And by sharing forgiveness, the result is that together, Paul, the church of Corinth, we are not outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. We adopt the posture of the gospel. So as a Christian community, we end with this. This text is indicating a powerful way we can put on the armor of God. This is how we overcome the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We let the gospel shape us. We let the gospel shape us so that we live the gospel towards others. We so embrace the gospel of Jesus towards us that we're able to express the gospel to others. Being forgiven people, that's what we are. Forgiven people, saved by the grace and mercy of God, not on the basis of our works or behavior or good performance, but the mercy and grace of God, we can live that in relation to others. And we are always giving cause to need forgiveness. Today, this morning, you and I will give cause for someone to need to forgive us. But of any group of people, Christians should be the ones able and willing to give it. We love because he first loved us. We have the power to love, because he first loved us. We have the power to forgive, because he first forgave us. So to come full circle, as you interact with the world, as you interact with people who don't know the Lord Jesus, one of the greatest witnesses that you can have is to extend forgiveness to them, to offer grace to them. And you can only do it because you've received grace and forgiveness. It is unnatural to do this. It's not normal. But because it's unnatural, it testifies that this came from somewhere else. This came from outside the world. This power, this thing at work in you, ties ties you to somewhere else. And that's our testimony. We have been tied to something everlasting and it's it's not that we are nicer people because we're not we know that right 
There are, there are nicer people than, than us sitting here. People that don't know Jesus can be much more skilled at social relationships. We're forgiven people. We're nasty, forgiven people. And the Lord is changing us. He's teaching us. He's growing his character in us. And it's going to last a lifetime. Let it be. Lord, would you remove the false gospels that we adopt? The false messages that being your people means we're the nice people. Lord, let your gospel return to us. We know that we can't receive it unless we admit our desperate need for forgiveness. So let the truth sink into us, we pray. That our testimony would be true. That our witness would be faithful. Built on you and who you are. Not on our own power. In the name of Jesus, we pray.